Welcome to Volume 6 of The Magical Monarch of Mo. The Twelfth Surprise. The Land of Civilized Monkeys. I must tell you of a very strange adventure that befell Prince Zingle, which, had it not turned out exactly as it did, might have resulted in making him a captive for life in a remarkable country. By consulting Smith's history of Prince Zingle, you will notice that from boyhood he had a great passion for flying kites, and unlike other boys, he always undertook to make each kite larger than the last one. Therefore his kites grew in size and became larger and larger, until at length the prince made one twice as tall as himself. When it was finished, he was very proud of this great kite, and took it out to a level place to see how well it would fly being accompanied by many of the people of Mo, who took considerable interest in the prince's amusement. There happened to be a strong south wind blowing, and fearing the kite might get away from him, Zingle tied the string around his waist. It flew beautifully at first, but pulled so hard the prince could scarcely hold it. At last, when the string was all let out, there came a sudden gust of wind, and in an instant, Poor Zingle was drawn into the air as easily as an ordinary kite draws its tail. Up and up he soared, and the kite followed the wind and carried him over many countries until the strength died out of the air when the kite slowly settled toward the earth and landed the prince in the top of a tall tree. He now untied the string from his waist and fastened it to a branch of the tree, as he did not wish to lose the kite after all his bother in making it. Then he began to climb down to the ground, but on reaching the lower branches he was arrested by a most curious sight. Standing on the ground, gazing up at him, were a dozen monkeys, all very neatly dressed, and all evidently filled with surprise at the prince's sudden appearance in the tree. "'What a queer animal!' exclaimed an old monkey, who wore a tall silk hat and had white kit gloves on his hands. Gold spectacles rested on his nose, and he pointed toward the prince with a gold-headed cane. By his side was a little girl monkey, dressed in pink skirts and a blue bonnet. When she saw Zingle, she clung to the old monkey's hand and seemed frightened. Oh, Grandpa! she cried. Take me back to Mama! I'm afraid the strange beast will bite me! Just then, a big monkey, wearing a blue coat with brass buttons and swinging a short club in his hand, strutted up to them and said, Don't be afraid, little one. The beast won't hurt you while I'm around. And then he tipped his cap over his left ear and shook his club at the prince, as if he did not know what fear meant. Two monkeys, who were dressed in red jackets and carried muskets in their hands, now came running up, and having looked at Prince Zingle with much interest, they called for someone to bring them a strong rope. We'll capture the brute and put him in the zoo, said one of the soldier monkeys. What kind of an animal is it? asked the other. I don't know, but some of our college professors can doubtless tell, and even if they can't, they'll give it some scientific name that'll satisfy the people just as well. All this time, Prince Zingle remained clinging to the branches of the tree. He could not understand a word of the monkey language, and therefore had no idea what they were talking about. But he judged from their actions that the monkeys were not friendly. 
When they brought a long and stout rope and prepared to throw one end of it over his head in order to capture him, he became angry and called out to them, Stop! I command you! What is the meaning of this strange conduct? I am Prince Zingle, eldest son of the monarch of Mo, and since I have been blown into your country through an accident, I certainly deserve kind treatment at your hands. But this speech had no meaning in the ears of the monkeys, who said to each other, Hear him bark! He jabbers away almost as if he could talk! By this time a large crowd of monkeys had surrounded the tree, some being barefooted boy monkeys, and some lady monkeys dressed in silken gowns and gorgeous raiment of the latest mode, and others men monkeys of all sorts and conditions. There were dandified monkeys, and sober-looking business monkeys, as well as several who appeared to be politicians and officials of the high degree. Stand back, all of you! shouted one of the soldiers. We're going to capture this remarkable beast for the royal menagerie, and unless you stand out of the way, he may show fight and bite someone. So they moved back to a safe distance, and the soldier monkey prepared to throw a rope. Stop! cried Zingle again. Do you take me for a thief that you tried to bind me? I am a prince of the royal blood, and unless you treat me respectfully, I shall have my father the king march his army on you and destroy your whole country. He's barking louder, said the soldier. Look out for him. He may be dangerous. The next moment he threw the rope and caught poor Zingle around his arms and body so that he was helpless. Then the soldier monkey pulled hard on the rope and Prince Zingle fell out of the tree to the ground. At first the monkeys all pressed backwards as if frightened, but their soldiers cried out, We've got him now. He can't bite ya. Then one of them approached the prince and punched him with a stick, saying, Stand up! Zingle did not understand the words, but he resented being prodded with the stick, so he sprang up and rushed on the soldier, kicking the stick from his hands, his own arms being bound by the rope. The monkey screamed and rushed in every direction, but the other soldier came up behind the prince and knocked him down with the butt of his gun. Then he tied his legs with another rope, and seeing him thus bound, the crowd of monkeys, which had scattered and fallen over one another in their efforts to escape, came creeping timidly back and looking on him with fear and trembling. We've subdued him at last, remarked the soldier who had been kicked. But he's a very fierce animal, and I shall take him to the zoo and lock him in one of our strongest cages. So they led poor Zingle away to where the royal zoological gardens were located, and there they put him into a big cage with iron bars the door being fastened with two great padlocks. Before very long, every monkey in the country learned that a strange beast had been captured and brought to the zoo, and soon a very large crowd had gathered before Zingle's cage to examine him. Isn't he sweet? said a lady monkey who held a green parasol over her head and wore a purple veil on her face. Sweet, grunted a man monkey standing beside her. He's the ugliest looking brute I've ever seen. Scarcely has any hair at all on him, and no tail. And look at that little chin. Wonder where on earth such a creature came from. It may be one of those beings from whom our race is descended, said another onlooker. The professors say we evolved from some primitive creature of this sort. Heaven forbid, cried a dandy monkey, whose collar was so high that it kept tipping his hat over his eyes. If I thought such a creature as that was one of my forefathers, I should commit suicide at once. 
Zingle had been sitting on the floor of his cage and wondered what was to become of him in this strange country of monkeys. And now, to show his authority, one of the keepers took a long stick and began to poke the prince to make him stand up. Stop that! shouted the angry captive, and catching hold of the stick, he jerked it from the keeper's hand and struck him a sharp blow on the head with it. All the lady monkeys screamed at this, and the men monkeys exclaimed, what an ugly disposition the brute has! The children monkeys began to throw peanuts between the bars of the cage. And Zingle, who had now become very hungry, picked them up and ate them. This act so pleased the little monkeys that they shouted with laughter. At last, two solemn-looking monkeys with grey hair, wearing long black coats and white neckties, came up to the cage where they were greeted with much respect by the other monkeys. So... This is the strange animal, one of the newcomers said, putting on his spectacles and looking sharply at the captive. Do you recognize this species, Professor? The other aged monkey also regarded the prince critically before he answered. I cannot say I have ever seen a specimen of this genus before, but one of our textbooks mentions an obscure animal called Homo peculiaris, and I have no doubt this is one of that family. I shall write an article on that creature and claim he is a homo, and without doubt the paper will create quite a stir in the scientific world. See here, suddenly demanded Prince Zingle, standing up and shaking the bars of his cage. Are you going to give me anything to eat, or do you expect me to live on peanuts forever? Not knowing what he said, none of the monkeys paid any attention to his question, but one of the professor monkeys appeared to listen intently and then remarked to his friend, There seems to be a variety of sound in his speech that indicates that he possesses some sort of language. Had I time to study this brute, I might learn his method of communicating with his fellows. Indeed, there is a possibility he may turn out to be the missing link. However, the professor not yet having learned his language, Prince Zingle was obliged to remain hungry. The monkeys threw several coconuts into the cage, but the prisoner did not know what kind of fruit these were, so after several attempts to bite the hard shell, he decided they were not good to eat. Day after day now passed away, and although crowds of monkeys came to examine Zingle in his cage, the poor prince grew very pale and thin for lack of proper food, while the continuance of his unhappy imprisonment made him sad and melancholy. Could I but escape and find my way back to my father's valley? He moaned wearily. I should be willing to fly small kites forever afterwards. Often he begged them to let him go, but the monkeys gruffly commanded him to stop his jabbering and poked him with long sticks having sharp points, so that the prince's life became one of great misery. At the end of about two weeks, a happy relief came to Zingle, for then a baby hippopotamus was captured and brought to the royal zoo. And after this, the monkeys left the prince's cage and crowded around that of the new arrival. Finding himself thus deserted, Prince Zingle began to seek a means of escape from his confinement. His first attempt was to break the iron bars, but soon he found they were too big and strong. Then he shook the door with all his strength, but the big padlocks held firmly and could not be broken. Then the prisoner gave way to despair and threw himself upon the floor of the cage, weeping bitterly. Suddenly he heard a great shout from the direction of the cage where the baby hippopotamus was confined, 
and rising to his feet, the prince walked to the bars and attempted to look out and discover what was causing the excitement. To his astonishment, he found he was able to thrust his head between two of the iron bars, having grown so thin through hunger and abuse that he was much smaller than when the monkeys had first captured him. He realized at once that if his head would pass through the bars, his body could be made to do so likewise. So he struggled bravely, and at last succeeded in squeezing his body between the bars and leaping safely to the ground. Finding himself at liberty, the prince lost no time in running to the tree where he had left his kite. But on the way, some of the boy monkeys discovered him and raised a great cry, which soon brought hundreds of his enemies in pursuit. Zingle had a good start, however, and soon reached the tree. Quickly, he climbed up the trunk and branches until he had gained the limb where the string of his kite was still fastened. Untying the cord, he wound it around his waist several times, and then, finding a strong north wind blowing, he skillfully tossed the kite into the air. At once it filled and mounted to the sky, lifting Zingle from the tree and carrying him with perfect ease. It was fortunate he got away at that moment, for several of the monkeys had scrambled up the tree after him and were almost near enough to seize him by the legs when, to their surprise, he shot into the air. Indeed, so amazed were they by this remarkable escape of their prisoner that the monkeys remained staring into the air until Prince Zingle had become a little speck in the sky above them, finally disappearing. That was the last our prince ever saw of the strange country of the monkeys, for the wind carried his kite straight back to the Valley of Mo. When Zingle found himself above his father's palace, he took out his pocket knife and cut the string of the kite, and immediately fell head foremost into a pond of custard that lay in the backyard, where he dived through a floating island of whipped cream and disappeared from view. Nuff said, who was sitting on the bank of the custard lake, was nearly frightened into fits by this sight, and he ran to tell the king that a new meteor had fallen and ruined one of his floating islands. Thereupon the monarch and several of his courtiers rushed out and found Prince Zingle swimming ashore, and the king was so delighted at seeing his lost son again that he clasped him joyfully in his arms. The next moment he regretted this act, for his best ermine robe was smeared its whole length with custard, and would need considerable cleaning before it would be fit to wear again. The prince and the king soon changed their clothes, and then there was much rejoicing throughout the land. Of course, the first thing Zingle asked was for something to eat, and before long he was sitting at a table heaped with all sorts of wood things, plucked fresh from the trees. The people crowded around him demanding the tale of his adventures, and their surprise was only equaled by their horror when they learned that he had been captured by a band of monkeys and shut up in a cage because he was thought to be a dangerous wild beast. Experience is said to be an excellent teacher, although a very cruel one. Prince Single had now seen enough of foreign countries to remain contented with his beautiful valley, and although it was many years before he again attempted to fly a kite, it was noticed that when he at last did indulge in that sport, the kite was of a very small size. The Thirteenth Surprise The Stolen Plum Pudding the king's plum pudding crop had for some time suffered from the devastations of a secret enemy. Each day as he examined the vines, he found more and more of the plum pudding missing, and finally the monarch called his wise men together 
and asked them what he should do. The wise men immediately shut their eyes and pondered so long over the problem that they fell asleep. While they slept, still more of the plum pudding was stolen. When they awoke, the king was justly incensed and told the wise men that unless they discovered the thief within three days, he would give them no cake with their ice cream. This terrible threat at last aroused them to action, and after consulting together they declared that in their opinion it was the fox that had stolen the pudding. Hearing this, the king ordered out his soldiers, who soon captured the fox and brought him to the palace, where the king sat in state surrounded by his wise men. So ho, Master Fox, exclaimed the king, we have got you at last. Yes, so it seems, returned the fox calmly. May I ask your majesty why I am thus torn from my home, from my wife and children, and brought before you like a common criminal? You have stolen the plum pudding, answered the king. I beg your majesty's pardon for contradicting you, but I have stolen nothing, declared the fox. I can easily prove my innocence. When was the plum pudding taken? A great deal of it was taken this morning while the wise men slept said the king. Then I cannot be the thief, replied the fox, as you would admit when you've heard my story. Ah, oh, have you a story to tell? inquired the king, who dearly loved his stories. It's a short story, your majesty, but it will clearly prove that I have not taken your plum pudding. Then tell it, commanded the king. It is far from my wish to condemn anyone who is innocent. The wise men then placed themselves in comfortable positions, and the king crossed his legs and put his hands in his pockets, while the fox sat before them on his haunches and spoke as follows. The fox's story. It has been unusually damp in my den of late, so that both my family and myself have suffered much. First my wife became ill, and then I was afflicted with a bad cold, and in both cases it settled at our throats. Then my four children who are all of an age, began to complain of sore throats, so that my den became a regular hospital. We tried all the medicines we knew of, but they did no good at all. My wife finally begged me to go consult Dr. Prairie Dog, who lives in a hole in the ground away toward the south. So one morning I said goodbye to my family and ran swiftly to where the doctor lives. Finding no one outside the hole to whom I might apply for admission, I walked boldly in and having followed a long dark tunnel for some distance, I suddenly came to a door. Come in, said a voice. So I walked in, and found myself in a very beautiful room, lighted by forty-eight fireflies, which sat in a row on a rail, running around the apartment. In the centre of the room was a table made of clay, and painted in bright colours. Seated at this table, with his spectacles on his nose, was the famous Dr. Prairie Dog, engaged in eating a dish of stewed snails. Good morning, said the doctor. Will you have some breakfast? No, thank you, I replied, for the snails were not to my liking. I wish to procure some medicine for my children who are suffering from sore throats. How do you know their throats are sore? inquired the doctor. It hurts them to swallow, I explained. They tell them not to swallow, said the doctor, and without eating. Sir, I exclaimed, if they do not swallow, they would starve to death. That is true, remarked the doctor. We must think of something else. After a moment of silence, he cried out, Ha, I've got it. Go home and cut off their necks. 
after which you must turn them inside out and hang them on the bushes in the sun. When the necks are thoroughly cured in the sun, turn them right side out again and place them on your children's shoulders. Then they will find it does not hurt them to swallow. I thanked the great doctor and returned home, where I did as he told me. For the last three days the necks of not only my children, but my wife and myself, as well, have been hanging in the bushes to be cured. So we could not possibly have eaten your plum pudding. Indeed, it was only an hour ago when I finished putting the neck of the last of my children, and at that moment your soldiers came and arrested me. When the fox ceased speaking, the king was silent for a moment. Then he asked, Were all the necks cured? Oh, yes, replied the fox. The sun cured them nicely. You see, returned the king, turning to the wise man, the fox has proved his innocence. You were wrong as usual in accusing him. I shall now send him home with six baskets of cherry phosphate as his reward for his honesty. If you have not discovered the thief by the time I return, I shall keep my threat and stop your allowance of cake. Then the wise men fell a-trembling and put their heads together, counselling with one another. When the king returned, they said, Your, your majesty, majesty, it, it must, must have, have been, been the bullfrog. bullfrog. So the king sent his soldiers who captured the bullfrog and brought him to the palace. Why have you stolen the plum pudding? demanded the king in a stern voice. I steal your plum pudding? exclaimed the frog indignantly. Surely you must be mistaken. I am not at all fond of plum pudding. And besides, I have been very busy at home during the past week. What have you been doing? asked the king. I will tell you. For then you will know I am innocent of this theft. So the bullfrog squatted on a footstool, and after blinking solemnly at the king and his wise men for a moment, spoke as follows. The Frog Story Some time ago, my wife and I hatched twelve little tadpoles. They were the sweetest children parents ever looked on. Their heads were all very large and round, and their tails long and feathery while their skins were as black and shiny as could be. We were proud of them, my wife and I, and took great pains to train our children properly that they might become respectable frogs in time and be a credit to us. We lived in a snug little hole under the bank of the river, and in front of our dwelling was a large stone on which we could sit and watch the baby tadpoles grow. Although they loved best to lie in the mud at the bottom of the river, we knew that exercise is necessary to proper development of a tadpole. So we decided to teach our youngsters to swim. We divided them into two lots, my wife training six of the children while I took charge of the other six. We drilled them to swim in single file, in columns of two, and in lines of battle, but I must acknowledge they were quite stupid being so young, and unless we told them when to stop, they would keep on swimming until they bumped themselves into a bank or a stone. One day, about a week ago, while teaching our children to swim, we started them all going in a single file, one after the other. They swam in a straight line that was very pretty to see, and my wife and I sat on the flat stone and watched them with much pride. Unfortunately, at that very moment, a large fish swam into our neighborhood and lay on the bottom of the river to rest. 
It was one of those fishes who hold their great mouths wide open, and I was horrified when I saw the advancing line of tadpoles headed directly toward the gaping mouth of the monster fish. I croaked as loudly as I could for them to stop, but either they failed to hear me or they would not obey. The next moment, all the line of swimming tadpoles had entered the fish's mouth and were lost to our view. Mrs. Frog threw herself into my arms with a cry of anguish, exclaiming, Whatever will we do, our children are lost to us forever. Do not despair, I answered, although I was myself greatly frightened. We must try to prevent the fish from swimming away with our loved ones. If we can keep him here, some way may yet be found to rescue the children. Up to this time, the big fish had remained motionless but there was an expression of surprise in his round eyes, as if it did not know what to make of the lively inhabitants of his stomach. Mrs. Frog thought for a moment and then said, A short distance away is an old fish line and hook lying on the bottom of the river, where some boys lost it while fishing one day. If we could only... Fetch it at once, I interrupted her. With its aid we shall endeavor to capture the fish. She hastened away, soon returning with the line, which had a large hook on one end. I tied the other end firmly around the flat stone, and then, advancing cautiously from behind, that the fish might not see me, I stuck the iron hook right through its gill. The monster gave a sudden flop that sent me head over heels a yard away. Then it tried to swim down the stream, but the hook and line held fast, and soon the fish realized it was firmly caught, after which it wisely abandoned the struggle. Mrs. Frog and I now sat down to watch the result, and the time of waiting was long and tedious. After several days, however, the great fish lay over on its side and expired, and soon after there hopped from its mouth the sweetest little green frog you ever laid eyes on and another and another followed, until twelve of them stood beside us. Then my wife exclaimed, They are our children, the tadpoles. They've lost their tails and their legs have grown out, but they are our own little ones nonetheless. Indeed it was true, for tadpoles always become frogs when a few days old. The children told us they had been quite comfortable inside the great fish, but now they were hungry for young frogs always have wonderful appetites. So Mrs. Frog and I set to work feeding them, and had just finished this pleasant task when your soldiers came to arrest me. I assure your majesty this is the first time I have been out of the water for a week, and now if you'll permit me to depart, I will hop back home and see how the youngsters are growing. When the bullfrog had ceased speaking, the king turned toward the wise men and said angrily, it seems you are wrong again, for the frog is innocent. Your boasted wisdom appears to me to be like folly, but I will give you one more chance. If you fail to discover the culprit next time, I shall punish you far more severely than I have first promised. The king now gave the bullfrog a present of a red silk necktie and also sent a bottle of perfumery to Mrs. Frog. The soldiers at once released the prisoner, who joyfully hopped away toward the river. The wise men now rolled their eyes toward the ceiling and twirled their thumbs, 
and thought as hard as they could. At last they told the king that they had decided the yellow hen was undoubtedly responsible for the theft of the plum pudding. So the king sent his soldiers, who searched throughout the valley, and at last captured the yellow hen and brought her into the royal presence. My wise men say, you have stolen my plum pudding, said his majesty. If this is true, I am going to punish you severely. But it's not true, answered the yellow hen, for I have just returned from a long journey. Where have you been? inquired the king. I will tell you, she replied, and after rearranging a few of her feathers that the rough hands of the soldiers had must, the yellow hen spoke as follows. The Yellow Hen's Story All my life I've been accustomed to hatching out thirteen eggs, but the last time there were only twelve eggs in the nest when I got ready to set. Being experienced in these matters, I knew it would never do to set on twelve eggs, so I asked the Red Rooster for his advice. He considered the question carefully and finally told me he had seen a very nice large egg lying on the rocks near the Sugar Mountain. If you wish, he said, I'll get it for you. I'm very sorry to trouble you, yet certainly I need thirteen eggs, I answered. The red rooster is an accommodating fowl, so away he flew and shortly returned with a large white egg under his wing. This egg I put with the other twelve and then I sat faithfully on my nest for three weeks, at the end of which time I hatched out my chickens. Twelve of them were as yellow and fluffy as any mother could wish, but the one that came from the strange egg was black and awkward and had a large bill and sharp claws. Still, thinking he was one of my children, despite his deformity, I gave him as much care as any of them, and soon he outgrew the others and became very big and strong. The red rooster shook his head and said bluntly, That chick will be a great trouble to you, for it looks to me strangely like one of our enemies, the hawks. What, I exclaimed reproachfully, do you think one of my darling children could possibly be a hawk? I consider that remark almost an insult, Mr. Rooster. The red rooster said nothing more, but he kept away from my big black chick as if he was really afraid of it. To my great grief, this chick suddenly developed a very bad temper, and one day I was obliged to reprove it for grabbing the food away from its brothers. Suddenly it began screaming with anger, and the next moment it sprang on me, digging its sharp claws into my back. While I struggled to free myself, he flew far up into the air, carrying me with him, and uttering loud cries that filled me with misgivings. For now I realized when it was too late that his voice sounded exactly like the cry of a hawk. Away and away he flew, over mountains and valleys and rivers and lakes, until at last, as I looked down, I saw a man pointing a gun at us. A moment later he shot, and the black chick gave a scream of pain, at the same time releasing his hold on me. I fell over and over, and finally fluttered to the ground. Then I found I had escaped one danger only to encounter another, for as I reached the ground, the man seized me and carried me under his arm to his home. Entering the house, he said to his wife, Here is a nice fat hen for our breakfast. Put her in the coop, replied the woman. After supper, I'll cut off her head and pick the feathers from her body. 
This frightened me greatly, as you may suppose, and when the man placed me in the coop, I nearly gave way to despair. But finding myself alone, I plucked up courage and began looking for a way to escape. To my great joy, I soon discovered that one of the slats of the coop was loose, and having pushed it aside, I was not long in gaining my freedom. Once free, I ran away from the place as fast as possible, but did not know in which direction to go, the country being so strange to me. So I fluttered on, half running and half flying, until I reached the place where an army of soldiers was encamped. If these men saw me, I feared they would also wish to eat me for breakfast. So I crept into the mouth of a big cannon, thinking I should escape attention and be safe until morning. Soon I fell asleep, and so sound was my slumber that the next thing I heard was the conversation of some soldiers who stood beside the cannon. It's nearly sunrise, said one. You must fire the salute. Is the cannon loaded? Oh, yes, answered the other. What shall I shoot at? Fire into the air, for then you will not hurt anybody, said the first soldier. By this time I was trembling with fear and had decided to creep out of the cannon and take chances of being caught, when suddenly, bang went the big gun, and I shot into the air with a rush like that of a whirlwind. The noise nearly deafened me, and my nerves were so shattered that for a time I was helpless. I felt myself go up and up into the air until soon I was far above the clouds. Then I recovered my wits, and when I began to come down again, I tried to fly. I knew the Valley of Mo must be somewhere to the west, so I flew in that direction until I found myself just over the valley, when I allowed myself to flutter to the ground. It seems my troubles were not yet over, for before I had fully recovered my breath after this long flight, your soldiers seized me and brought me here. I am accused of stealing your plum pudding, but in truth, your majesty, I have been away from your kingdom for nine whole days, and am therefore completely innocent. The yellow hen had scarcely finished this story when the king flew into a violent rage at the deceptions of his wise men, and turning to his soldiers, he ordered them to arrest the wise men and cast them into prison. Having given the unfortunate hen a pair of gold earrings that fit her ears and matched her complexion, the king sent her home with many apologies for having accused her wrongfully. Then his majesty seated himself in an easy chair and pondered how best to punish the foolish wise men. I would rather have one really wise man, he said to himself, than fifty of these who pretend to be wise and are not. That gave him an idea. So the next morning he ordered the wise men taken to the royal kitchen, where all were run through the meat chopper until they were ground as fine as mincemeat. Having thoroughly mixed them, the king stirred in a handful of salt and then made them into one man, which the cook baked in the oven until it was well done. Now, said the king, I have one wise man instead of several foolish ones. Perhaps he can tell me who stored the plum pudding. Certainly, replied the wise man. That is quite easy. It was the purple dragon. Good, cried the monarch. I have discovered the truth at last. And so he had, as you will find out by reading the final surprise. <laughs>